Welcome to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host and the co-author of the book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Rebecca Bernard. Physicians train for at least 15,000 hours before we are permitted to practice independently. And one of the reasons is because it takes a long time and a lot of patient volume to be exposed to the many different presentations of disease processes and to learn how to recognize emergencies when they occur, especially when they need immediate intervention. Today's guest brings us a perfect example of the importance of this training. Dr. Karen St. Singh is a veterinarian, and she's here to share her story of experiencing compartment syndrome, a life-threatening medical condition. Dr. St. Singh, welcome. Thank you for having me. And to help us better understand the medical implications of this condition, we are joined by trauma surgeon, Dr. Stephanie Markle. Dr. Markle, thanks for being here. Pleasure to be here. Karen, start us out by telling us a little bit about yourself. You're a small town veterinarian, right? Yep. Solo practitioner, mixed animal, mobile, pretty much do everything except for horses, just a little bit there, um, food, animal, fibers, what I specialize in, all out of my truck and by myself. That's amazing. You know, a lot of my friends that are pediatricians say that they feel like there's probably, they have some things in common with veterinarians because their patients can't tell them. <laughs> What's going yeah. on? <laughs> Stephanie, you are a trauma surgeon, which is like, wow, super impressive woman trauma surgeon. Tell us a little bit about your journey. Basically, I also feel like I have a lot in common with veterinarians, as most of my patients sometimes present and are unable to tell me what happened or how they got injured or where they ended up or all of those. So I sometimes feel a little bit like I have to rely on my spidey senses instead, but uh, all through medical school, I then did a five-year general surgery residency program. And then during that, I decided I really just love not knowing what's going to happen every day, being able to be creative in how you put people back together. So I took another two years and did a fellowship in critical care and trauma. And now I've been in attending for seven years. I'm in a I'm in a group of five. And there are three female trauma surgeons in my group, which is pretty fantastic. And our director is also a female. So that's also quite unusual and awesome. And that's basically what I've been doing ever since. God bless you, because I remember my trauma surgery rotations in medical school. Those were probably the most um, intense and for me, unpleasant of my life, just being up all night and the hot operating room lights. And uh, yeah, God bless you for what you do, because you know, you're really there when people really need you in those direst moments. And it took a lot of training to get to do what you do now. So I thank you for that. And you're here also because you have a lot of experience with the condition that Karen went through. So I'm going to use you to help us to understand better what the, the medical implications are. But let's start out by having Karen tell us a little bit about her story. Now, you started out having really severe pain in your hand or your arm, and you ended up going to a local urgent care because really that's about the only medical care that you have in your community, right? It, it was the only option as with me being so busy during the day and uh, being on call a lot that really it it's the only option that I have many times if I don't want medical care. And it hurt so much that it was just to the point where I was like, I can't, 
I can't function and do my job properly because all I can think about is this pain. It was a Friday. I'd worked that whole day, not done anything super strenuous. Last thing I did for the day was um, put an orogastric tube in a goat. But I didn't see anything on my arm that indicated a sting. The next day, it just kind of really hurt. It just kept on hurting and hurting. And I finally told my husband, I was like, I need to leave. We need to go to the urgent care now. Now, what what was it? So you so you put a tube down a goat's throat. And I'm sorry, I laughed a little bit because I got a mental picture of that. Although <laughs> the poor goat. So you put a tube down. And what was it that started hurting afterwards? Your hand? It, it actually didn't hurt afterwards. I just... That was the last thing I did. And I thought maybe put the most recent thing and correlated it. With. So, so you felt perfectly fine that night. Yeah. And then the next mm-hmm. morning you woke up. And probably you had- the next afternoon. It was when it probably like mid afternoon. And uh, it just generally hurt like kind of all over. But I couldn't even at that point in time was when I started to not being able to spread my fingers. Okay. Well. So it was your hand that started hurting a lot or your arm, the arm in general. But if I tried to spread my fingers, which I now know is one of the classic signs, it really hurt getting worse throughout the day, not getting better. And I couldn't open my fingers. And so I went to the urgent care and you know, explain what was going on, showed her. And I even specifically asked about compartment syndrome. Uh, I don't know why. I still have no idea why. I'd been reading some like strange diagnoses and misdiagnosis books that are out there. I specifically asked and I was told no, absolutely. There's no way it could be that. Karen, let me stop you because I don't know too much about compartment syndrome. I'm going to have Dr. Markle fill us in, but did you have any kind of redness? Was your, was your hand swollen or was it simply that it hurt a lot? It just hurt a lot with absence of no trauma, no wounds, nothing. All right. Um, Dr. Markle, fill us in. What is compartment syndrome? And is this an easy diagnosis to make? And what do you think when you hear this story? It is usually a, a difficult diagnosis to make in, especially in the setting without trauma. Obviously, if there's trauma, the diagnosis becomes a little bit more likely, but the real big signs are usually the first one is pain and it's pain out of proportion. So you would like look at your hand or your arm or whatever the area is that is involved and it doesn't look bad to the visually, but the pain is excruciating. So That is usually any time of pain out of proportion, in my opinion, and any physician, I think it's always like a red flag somewhere in the back, like, okay, something is clearly going on. This is not normal. And then I usually find that the the pain with passive motion. So like if I would try to move your fingers open or close your hand or move any of the muscles, it would also create more excruciating pain, especially than something that you would anticipate just from moving a joint or moving a muscle. So that's the first classic sign. There are five more, um, but pain is the first. And as you move down the gradient, then they get worse and less reversible. So you'll have pain first, and then you get pallor or a change in your color. And that has to do with decreased blood flow to wherever it is that is is having the the issue because it can be pretty much anywhere. 
What um, is compartment syndrome? So your your muscles are basically encapsulated in this compartment uh, surrounded by fascia, which is the, the covering that sort of surrounds your muscle compartments. And each section of the body has multiple compartments, some more than others. And then when you have sometimes like trauma, broken bone or excessive muscle use, so you could do or no excessive squats or something where you're doing repetitive motion with a certain set of muscles, that muscle then becomes essentially injured, even though you didn't traumatize it with a machine or an injury. And then the muscle itself will start to swell. And because it's sort of locked into a compartment, it doesn't have anywhere to go except for it sort of squeezes on itself. Therefore, it decreases the blood supply within that compartment. So the little tiny capillaries in your muscles start to have less and less blood. So that's why then you get the pain first from the swelling, then the decreased color from the the decreased blood flow. Then you get numbness and tingling like a when you feel like your your limb is asleep because you slept on it funny. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, just the pins and needles everywhere. But then you release whatever it is that was putting pressure on it and you can feel blood flow return and you get that sensation back. That essentially is also what's happening, but on a little bit different scale, you also will get it. It'll be cool to the touch because again, it has to do with blood supply and our blood is obviously a body temperature of 97 degrees. And when you have less of it, you will get cooler. And then because it's affecting the nerves with too much pressure and not of blood supply, you basically will have ischemia or an insult of everything. And that will end with paralysis. Wow. So very muscle, very serious. So you could lose your arm and I potentially even worse, right? Yeah. You could lose an arm, a leg, a hand. Um, I guess you could die if it didn't get, get treated properly. I would imagine. Yes. And, and I mean, you can even get compartment syndrome of your abdominal cavity of your chest cavity. I mean, usually that's from, you know, burns or other, other situations, but essentially any compartment in your body can develop a compartment syndrome. Extremities are the most common, but it, it can happen in any of the compartments that are constrained. Well, it sounds extremely painful. So Karen, you were at the urgent care and you even brought up like, could this be compartment syndrome? And the nurse practitioner was like, absolutely not. What, what did she think it was? Uh, she thought it was a sprain, which I honestly, if I've had one, I don't know. <laughs> I've just worked over it. I was like, okay. And she put me in a sling and said, don't use it. Have fun. And set me out the door. Uh, I think they gave me a toroidal injection because that's apparently something for pain, <laughs> anti-inflammatory. Yeah, um, so she sent you out the door. And then of course it started getting worse. So if, at a certain point you were like, I got to go to the emergency room. And you wrote that you actually were just, you just wanted something to take you out of the pain because it was so severe. And what happened when you got to the emergency room? Basically uh, I was in pain beyond what I've ever experienced, which, you know, they always ask what, what, pain level you are and I'm like well I've had compartment syndrome so I know what a 10 is really like <laughs> and um, that was a 10 but I was crying and I don't 
do that. Like, I don't. Well, like you're a small town veterinarian. My guess is you've been bit by animals. (laughs) You've been, you know, stepped on nails. You've been kicked. Yeah. So you've got to be pretty damn tough to do what you do. So you're in severe pain. Yeah. But fortunately, it sounds like you had a really amazing emergency physician, a small town ER doctor. And you said that he actually knew what it was right away. Yeah, he did. He could look at them and he, I mean, he kind of looked at my hand first is what he noticed that I couldn't open it. It was kind of all scrunched up, like kind of like when your hand's in the glove that's too tight or like a a, a surgical glove that's too tight, it makes you ball all up. And I couldn't even open it. I had a baby raccoon at the time that was bottle feeding. I couldn't even open it to like put the bottle in my hand. That was too excruciating. And as soon as he looked at me, I could just tell, like, you know, I've I've had that, that thought before, like, I know what this is. And, you know, I've never seen it before, but I know what this is. Like that clinical acumen where like that light bulb just goes off and you're like, oh, crap, this is something that I never seen, but I know I have to watch out for. Yeah. And he like being very efficient he knew, and, and this is something I really appreciated as a vet because efficiency is is kind of a big deal. If I'm sending somebody off, I know that I can do things for cheaper or I can get things done faster before I send them off to a major facility. So he went ahead and got you know things done like blood work and x-rays and things that he knew that weren't going to really help, but were going to help reduce the amount of time while he was on the phone with the, um, I call it a referral hospital, but the university hospital, once he got all that done, he, that's when he came and talked to me and said, you know, this is compartment syndrome. You need to go. There's nothing we can do for you here. You need a hand specialist Mm -hmm. and you know, you need to go now. You know, it's so interesting, Karen, that you say that he even said to you that he had never seen one of these before. And this was like a, a doc who was pretty experienced. But yeah, yet, he, was he, def- he was an older doctor, one that's yeah. been around a long time. I yeah, think I've never seen a case of it ago. in my career. But Dr. Merkel, you've seen lots of cases of this because this is what you do and you get to see these. Talk, talk to us about how common this is, how hard it is to diagnose, and what do you actually do if you have a patient that you suspect this condition in? Especially in in your setting, Karen, where where there was lack of trauma specifically, obviously the diagnosis I think is even harder to make because that history, as we all know, is so important. It's usually 90% of your diagnosis is is made just in in the history and how you describe it. So I think with the the pain out of proportion is the the red flag every single time. And and again, I mean, you can also get this too from an abscess, for instance, or something of that nature. And the hand especially, they're very small compartments because the muscles are very tiny. So it doesn't probably take very much to cause compartment problems. I also had one in somebody where she had an IV in her arm and the IV infiltrated. So it was no longer in the vein. It was sort of in the tissue and they were running a pretty toxic med through that IV. And until they recognized what happened, I mean, it was pretty quick, but they pulled it out and then, you know, the hand swelled and everything. And you know, Stephanie, on a side note, I'm just going to interject one thing. I see all these people doing these IV infusions, like, Oh, you're going to be healthy. We're going to give you vitamins. And they, people say, people get mad at me because I criticize it and they say, well, what's the harm? Um, <laughs> compartment syndrome. Yes. I mean, I literally had a 26 year old who, who lost part of her thumb, uh, and some of the function of her hand as a result of this IV that, that went poorly. 
you know, luckily she's 26 and everything is is okay. And you, you can do okay with missing a piece of your thumb, but the body part, <laughs> you were born with it. You should keep yeah, it. And to, and to go through that for a treatment that's completely unnecessary, not medically indicated, just because supposedly this, this myth that you're going to feel better, feel which better. isn't even true. Uh, it's, it's very infuriating. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And I think once you, you know, there, there's the, a way to physically diagnose it, but most of the time when I see it, I just assume that's the diagnosis and move straight to treatment because the, the academic aspect of making the diagnosis, you'll, you'll see it when you perform the treatment. So you can use pressure monitors and and actually take needles and put them into the compartment and measure the pressures. So that's one way to diagnose it, or you just open the compartments surgically with a knife. And that will also, the, the muscles will bulge out. It gives it a place to go and it allows the blood flow to return. And then, then you just have to deal with wound care after that. But that that's a, you know, now you'll still have hand function, motor activity, you know, and the one thing I forgot to mention earlier was that you can lose a pulse. So you'll actually lose your pulse before the paralysis. So either when you lose a pulse real bad and obviously and not being able to move it also real bad. And both of those are usually irreversible or getting really close to the, the point where if you don't intervene, there will be permanent damage. So it sounds like what the ER doctor had to do, number one, suspect compartment syndrome. That's the most important thing. And then number two, start getting on the ball as far as getting you transferred to the appropriate place where they could actually perform that surgery. And so he's on the phone coordinating, getting, uh, giving the report. He starts getting blood work and stuff like a pre-op kind of a, a workup, it sounds like. Now, Karen, talk to us about the thoughts that went through your head because you were terrified naturally. What were you feeling in this moment? Um, well, I knew what compartment syndrome is just because of my medical training. We get it a lot in animals with in their abdomen, like um, uh, Dr. Merkel was talking about. I, I knew what that was. And I, I knew that there was a good chance that I might lose my arm. And so my biggest factor or thought process was what am I going to do? Because I love what I do, but I really like doing food animal. And that's what makes me whole. And so my first concern was, how am I going to maintain my mental health and do a job I, I trained for years and I'm in severe debt for and, you know, still enjoy my life? And so I was like, you know, trying to think of different jobs that I could do, like I could go out west, but I'm going to have to move and go out west where there's like, you know, stockyards where I could do or huge dairies and just do palpation with one arm. Um Wow. So you're really like rethinking, like your life's flashing before your eyes and you're already like trying to plan your future with just one arm. And thank God it didn't come to that. Um, The doctor had you, your husband actually drive you right over to the hospital because he felt it was going to be faster than waiting for an ambulance. Cause I guess you're in, are you kind of, how far away are you? We're about two hours. Oh yeah. So by the time they send them from that place to you, it makes sense. So you just got right over there two hours this is where we always hear about like rural care, but here you had in your small town, this very astute, thank God, physician that knew what needed to be done. You got over there and you said that they were so on the ball, like they knew what was going on. They brought you right in and that even the surgery fellow just pushed you right from the bed into the operating room without waiting on nurses or anything. 
Yeah, it, it was. There was a really bad influx of people right as I came that were all very, very serious. So that was kind of the most like unnerving part for me was that I'm sitting here with people that are dying from strokes and heart attacks and motor vehicle accidents and things like that. I'm in the same ward as them and I have out TR, you know, that's what it looks like. And so I'm sitting here just kind of holding my arm, very, very painful while there's literally the person next to me was having a heart attack and two things down was having just got like a motorcycle, um, was on a motorcycle and got run over by like two cars or something. And so that was probably the most unnerving part because of that. It did take a little while for me to get back, but as soon as uh, orthopedic hand fellow came in, he literally took me right back. There was no, I was really amazed because I had two more than one surgery while I was there. And I was really amazed at how different those experiences were because like he took me into pre-op and was there. It was just me and him. That was it. There was no nurses, no anesthetists, nothing. It was me and him. And then um, took and they didn't make like he didn't have me undress or anything like that and took me straight. And just got right down to business. Like the next time I get there and they're like, okay, you need to undress now. And I'm like, well, I didn't have to the first time. (laughs) Now, Stephanie, this is like you're a trauma doctor. So you is this pretty common where. When you look at all these sick people, they're all sick, but there's a triage and you as a physician, you have to look past what superficially looks really bad and really hone in. Talk a little bit about what that's like as a physician. Yeah, I think that's actually the hardest thing to teach. And I think is the part that comes with the most experience. I mean, I really just want my interns after their first year to be able to look into a room and and be like, is this patient sick or not sick? And like, that's it. Like, that's all I expect. And that's just after a year of all they do is seeing patients, right? So I think as you sort of move through training, that's really what you you pick up on is even though some people, yeah, you you have a bone sticking out of your leg and be bleeding. But I was like, this is your compartment syndrome is more time sensitive than the bone sticking out the leg. So there's definitely experience that comes with understanding the disease process, what's going on and, and why intervening as soon as you can to sort of prevent the long-term sequela and complications is so important. Obviously a lot of what I do is urgent, emergent, more timely than elective, obviously your second surgery. And sometimes some of the, the closures and the wound care and stuff is a little bit more elective and go to pre-op and have your nice little conversations with your nurses and go through all the checklists. But I too have wheeled patients straight from the ER into the operating room. We get you to sleep and then we deal with undressing you and getting you prepped and doing it all, knowing that that's all a time time sensitive and, and that understanding who is the one that needs the attention first, that is truly the only thing that can come from experience. And and, and there's nothing other than just doing it and seeing thousands of patients over a course of seven years of training. That's why there's no shortcuts because no. it just takes that amount of time and that volume mm-hmm. until you've seen enough of these and you, and you can do that, or even just to think about something that you may have never seen before, but it's in the back of your mind because at some point you learned about it. <laughs> so it's so hard too, because you in in our training, there's so much graduated training. So you have like your intern and your junior resident, your senior resident, and then you get to me as the attending. And 
and I I'm there to make sure that everyone is in their appropriate level and doing doing things appropriately for their level of understanding. And it's very interesting to see the different decisions that a first year resident makes versus a fifth year resident. So training matters. 100%. Well, Dr. Saint Singh knows that for sure, because thank God for all of that. And fortunately, although you had to have a couple surgeries, and I understand you have a lovely scar that you can make up a lot of good stories about how you got. Um, but now you say that you actually were able to get back to work and you delivered a calf and pulled it out, which you weren't sure if you weren't going to be able to do that again. Yeah, yeah. I was so happy that day because that was, I was out for about um, a month and a half or so from work. Then when I went back, it, it was hard going back because I still was having to do a lot of exercises. I still can't feel part of my uh, the skin on my arm. Um, and it was very odd to like deal with that to beware like setting it down or getting scratched and things like that learning how to how to recognize that when I finally got back and was able to pull that calf. I was so excited and I took pictures and sent them to the um, hand surgeons and everybody because I was so excited. I'm sure they weren't quite, quite excited, but I was. I guarantee you they were absolutely. <laughs> like These are the types of things I think that make doctors, yeah. it makes it all worth it. All those years that Dr. Markle was in training, it's so that she can save someone's arm so that they can save someone's calf. <laughs> I mean, and, and so yeah. on and live their best and fullest life. And I want to thank you so much, Karen, for sharing your story, because what you wrote was that you wanted to bring light on the work that is being done in small town emergency rooms across this great country of ours, where we may not have, you know, hand surgeons and all the technology, but you, if you have an astute clinician, a physician with the right training, you can get to the right place to get to the right care, no matter where you are in the country. Yeah. Yeah. And that was my big thing is that I, I just, I see a lot of people um, second guessing Monday morning recording backing the local ERs and stuff like that, when we're really lucky to have what we do. And we're really lucky that it, you know, it's staffed by physicians and that, that are knowledgeable and care and all you ever hear about with things are the bad things I feel like. And I really had just gotten tired to that point where I was like, you know, y'all need to stop take a break, take a step back and just, you know, think about how lucky, what if they weren't there? If they weren't there, I don't know if I would have went and, you know, I don't know if I would, you know, still have an arm today. I just don't know. Well, and the other question is, what if you went into a hospital like Mercy El Reno in Oklahoma, where there was no physician available, there was a nurse practitioner, not even emergency trained, and they didn't know how to diagnose this. Um, Dr. Merkel, what could that have looked like if there hadn't been a physician to make the correct diagnosis there? I mean, I think I think she was leading exactly to that. I mean, I think, uh, you know, you you run the possibility of losing a hand or function of your hand, wrist, forearm, because again, if if you if you do nothing and you just let it go, one, the pain will eventually stop because you will have killed off all of the nerve and pain fibers, but that's bad. You don't want that to happen. But that 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 is the end result of compartment syndrome of an extremity is that it will die. And then there's not much else you can do. Well, I thank you so much for speaking out about this, not only to give credit to the hardworking emergency room staff 
but also as a warning call, if if you can say that, to everyone out there to really make sure that there is a physician staffing your emergency room. Uh, that might be something to even look into because ne- increasingly corporations are replacing physicians with non-physician practitioners in an effort to save money. Usually they'll say they can't find a physician, but generally that's not true. Generally, they, they just don't want to pay what it takes to get a physician. They want to cut corners. So uh, advocate for yourself. Make sure that there is a physician available to take care of you because uh, I always say one day I'm going to look up from a gurney and I want to make sure that there's a doctor there to take care of me. And I think that's what all of us deserve to have. So thank you so much, Dr. Karen St. Singh, Dr. Stephanie Markle for joining me for this really important conversation. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, I encourage you to get the book Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at Amazon and at barnesandnoble.com. And if you're a physician and you'd like to learn more about getting involved in advocating for physician-led care and truth and transparency among healthcare practitioners, please join our group. It's called Physicians for Patient Protection. Our website is physiciansforpatientprotection.com. Thank you so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast.